0: So as I mentioned earlier in the service, this is the first Sunday in Lent, and I chose that phrase in Lent wisely, on purpose, carefully, because Sundays are always in Lent and not part of Lent. Sundays, no matter what time of year, are always resurrection days. And even during the season of Lent, Sundays serve to remind us that Jesus is risen, that the kingdom has come, that forgiveness and new life are available, and so we don't fast on Sundays. Break your fast today, it's it's a a Sunday. I wanted to talk a little bit about why do we practice Lent, what is it all about, and is it even biblical? Well, Lent is a 40-day journey, not including Sundays, from Ash Wednesday, which was last Wednesday, uh, to Easter. And traditionally, Lent is a season of self-reflection, where we take inventory of who we are and who Jesus created us to be. Lent is usually associated with some form of discipline, such as fasting or abstaining from practices that distract us, or practices that might even deform our character. And Lent is a season when people may choose to practice something that they have neglected, such as as prayer, or reading scripture more regularly, or even serving others in a new and, and different way than you have Now, unfortunately, Lent has, over the years, received kind of a bad rap. And sometimes, in certain circles, Lent is viewed as this dour season when we should be serious and sullen and no one should smile. And sometimes it's viewed as a season where we give up bad habits like Facebook and chocolate and coffee only to binge with a vengeance again after Easter. And sometimes, Lent can be seen as a time we are supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and will ourselves to change. We resolve to do what it takes this time. It will be different and we'll be more like Jesus. But viewing Lent as a downer or just a futile exercise that only lasts 40 days or even a season of self-help is to miss the point altogether. Lent means springtime, Comes kind of from a Latin word for spring. Jesus has already come. He died for us. He rose and defeated death. New life is available to you and me right now. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have probably already tasted a little bit of that new life. But the reality is, every single one of us struggles with living into that new life that's available to us. We are easily tempted to sin. When we sin, we deny the new life that Jesus offers us, and when we deny that new life, we find ourselves stuck in ruts, leading to shame, leading to guilt, leading to just mediocrity. And after a while, we get used to a less than full. So Lent is a built-in season and the rhythm of the church calendar comes around every year and it's built in to help us take a look at ourselves and to recognize that perhaps we have been settling for less than Jesus came to offer and perhaps we've been settling for less than the fullness of the kingdom of God. We come face to face with the ruts that maybe we're frozen in and we invite the light of Jesus to thaw us like spring Thaws the grip. Lent is a spiritual springtime, and it presents us with the good news that Jesus is on the move. There's nothing you have to do to make Lent come. You can't stop the annual shift of the earth's position to the sun that creates longer days, a shifting jet stream, and warmer weather. It just happens. Spring just happens every year. And in a similar way, Jesus just happens. He's always on the move. He's always breaking down walls and melting frozen hearts. And the Lenten season is simply a a time of the year when we purposefully remember that Jesus is on. As for whether or not Lent is biblical, Lent, as we understand it, this whole season, the whole church calendar thing, is not in the Bible. It is not in the Bible. That doesn't mean it's not biblical. Electric bases aren't in the Bible. Right? But we do know that they're biblical. No, we do know what's in the Bible about music is that we're supposed to make a joyful noise to the Lord with our voices and with lots of instruments, even stringed instruments. And I'm sure if electric basses were around when Jesus was around in the first century, he'd have played the bass. Okay, at least that's my guess. But all kidding aside, Lent is not in the Bible. And it is nowhere commanded by uh, by this church or by the Bible for sure. It's not in the Bible but it can sure be helpful for us to receive the grace of Jesus. Uh, I am a forgetful person, and humans in general forget easily. Seasons like Advent, and Christmas, and Epiphany, and Lent, and Easter, and Pentecost, and ordinary time, help remind us of biblical events. Every year we come back to the same narratives, to the same stories. The Christian seasons are there to point us to Jesus. For the practices associated with Lent, like Bible reading and prayer and fasting, service and simplicity, these are all things that are in the Bible and they're all things that Jesus practiced personally. So here's my take on it. If we view Lent as a tool to help us grow closer to Jesus, then it can be a very good thing. Now, this Lenten season, I'm trying to make it a very good thing for us. And we're going to be engaging this series called Sacred Rhythm. Which is taken from the title of Ruth Haley Barton's book uh, on spiritual disciplines, on spiritual practices. It's a wonderful book, and our small groups are going through that curriculum. Um, if you're like, hey, that sounds good to me, I'm not in a small group, you can join one just for the Lenten season if you want. There's signups after service, go through there, check it out. Okay? We're going to be looking at different spiritual practices that can help us be filled with the life of Christ us be more of the people he created us to be. But spiritual disciplines are not what we're focusing on today. Far too often, we focus our attention on spiritual disciplines. We think something like this, I know I'm supposed to pray, I'm really bad at it, so during Lent I'm going to pick up the practice of prayer. My goal will be to pray. Or we say something like, everyone says this silence and solitude thing is so great, I hate it. But during Lent, I'm going to try and do silence and solitude. That's my goal. The problem with this approach is that doing disciplines is never the point. Spiritual disciplines are practices that help equip us for something more. So it's kind of like a musician who practices her scales. Nobody buys a ticket to hear a violinist practice her scales, right? But you practice your scales so that your mind and your fingers and your all are working together. So when you you start to play beautiful music, you don't have to think about all your posture and positioning. It comes more naturally. The reason you practice scales is not to practice scales. It's so that you can make beautiful music. If we wanted to switch over to sports, athletes train. They run lines. They do sprints. They lift weights. They they practice their skills. But you don't go out to the soccer game and, okay, they blow the whistle, and you flip the ball up and see how many times you can juggle in the middle of the field, right? That would not be the point of a soccer game. You play soccer to have fun playing the game. In basketball, you don't go to a tournament and then start to run lines as soon as the rebel blows whistle. Like, what's our point guard doing? Why is he running these... Play basketball. We train and condition and do skill exercises so that we can enjoy the game when it's game time. My point is this. Spiritual disciplines are not the goal. They're the tools to help us to get from where we are to where we want to be in Christ. In order to do that, we have to have a strong desire. We need a longing in our hearts before we're going to be willing to make any kind of change. We can't just give up something. Like, it's Lent, I'm going to give up coffee, or I'm going to give up alcohol, or whatever it is you're giving up, if you're giving anything up. You can't just do that without then saying, I want to attach to something better. In spiritual formation speak, there's the disciplines of detachment, detaching from harmful things, and the discipline of attachment, like I'm going to seek Jesus more fully. And so getting in touch with the longing of our hearts helps us to know what we want to grab onto, what we want to attach to. And the question I want to pose to us today is. They to help us in answering that question, we're going to be looking at two texts. Uh, one we're going to read together in just a second, and the other I'm just going to be referring to later on in the message. So it's a little bit of exercise just to get, break you up. Stand up as we read. Uh, I'll read it. It's, it's John chapter 1. This is John chapter 1. It's just a few short verses. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 39 you to keep in mind that when you hear Jesus speak in this, these are the very first words that Jesus speaks in this gospel. Again, the next day, John was standing, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard. Said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, it was about the tent. Baptist has been baptizing people, calling them. They're coming from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, all of these places. They're coming in droves to repent of their sin. He's baptizing them. And John is preaching this gospel of repentance of sin, and he's saying, I'm getting you ready. One is coming after me who's greater than I. I'm not even worthy to tie the sandal in his shoe. John's getting people ready for the coming of the Messiah. And John had many disciples, and two of them feature prominently in this story. The first is Andrew, who is the brother of Simon Peter. And the second is unnamed, but most scholars think it's almost certainly John, the later apostle of Jesus, the author of this gospel. Now, rabbis and disciples had extremely close relationships, and disciples pledged their loyalty to their teachers. So these disciples of John the Baptist have pledge their loyalty they're with him thick and thin working long hours with him learning about God from him and so it's interesting that when Jesus comes on the scene the disciples of John leave him to follow Jesus it wasn't the culturally sensitive thing to do and yet John doesn't seem too shocked by it either after all he's the one preparing the way for people to eventually follow this one who sent from God it was just something about Jesus that was so attractive that they were willing to lead John the Baptist and his very popular baptism ministry, by the way. If you've ever worked for a company you're really proud of or, or been an intern for some, I don't know, Big Shot, that you're really like, this is so cool, I'm, you know, Bill Gates' intern or Tim McElroy's intern or whatever it is. You, you just want to be around certain people, and, and their popularity, their buzz is fun to be around. And so here's all these people coming to the Jordan River and John's baptizing them, and they're willing to leave that with oh, this man who apparently they don't even know where he's staying, let alone who he really is. There's just something about Jesus that is that attractive. In Scripture, just like in life, first impressions are very important. Each gospel writer has their own way of introducing Jesus. And if you wanted a little homework, a fun exercise is just to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see what are the first words of Jesus recorded in each of those. Kind of interesting. Anyway, here in John's Gospel, we hear Jesus' first words as, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? You know, this is just the type of question that God asked in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned the first time. He said, where are you? And later on, Jesus encountered a blind man named Bartimaeus and he asked, what do you want me to do for you? And at the point Bethesda. there's a crippled man there, and Jesus asked him, do you wish to get well? What questions? All of these questions are really asking you side, it gently slopes down grass and then river rock and then the Jordan River. As we turn a corner, we hear a voice. It gets louder and louder. It is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. The trail juts out on the left side, kind of like one of those scenic overlooks on a mountain some people are congregated. They're listening to a man dressed in a camel's hair outfit. His wild eyes, a shaggy beard, and he's preaching about God's coming kingdom. He's telling people that they need to prepare themselves for this one who's coming after them. This lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of Wondering what he's talking about, there are whispers that he might be talking about the Messiah, the one who would rescue Israel from oppression under the Romans. Stop. us at a man walking in our direction. And as he as he looks at this man coming towards us, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. As the man approaches our group, he looks up at us with a gaze that at once communicates Walk a few paces behind him for a while, and all we can hear is the flow of the river on our left and the sound of feet pounding. You and I, we follow for what seems like a half an hour, and by now we're feeling the sun on our backs as it gets lower in the sky. We turn a corner to our right, and there ahead of us is a small cluster of trees. Jesus stops in the shade of the tree. Gather around for the rest. We begin to whisper. Disciples say uh, something to the effect of, I imagine, "Uh, where are you staying? On the surface, it sounds like someone drew the short straw and blurted out the most base question imaginable. Here's this amazing man, and he asks you what you're seeking. Uh, Where do you live? (laughs) But for the readers of John's Gospel who know the whole story, we realize that this question that the disciples ask is the question that Jesus will answer by the end of the story. The Greek word for where are you staying or living or remaining is abide now. Where are you abiding? That's literally what they're asking. They may only want to know where Jesus is, is living, but what they're going to find out is that Jesus is abiding in the Father. And what they come to realize later on in the story is that they will find life as they learn to abide in The disciples probably had no idea the power of their question. Most likely their question was as short-sighted as, so where do you live? What's your address? Where do you put your head down on the pillow? But now, why would they ask that? Let's give them a little bit of credit here. I believe they asked that because of their desire to be with Jesus. Their question may not have been the most articulate, but the root of their desire is to know this man more deeply. And if all they could get off and, and you know, been in the presence of some people that have really intimidated me, people I've looked up to, and then when I actually got close to them, it's like, I don't really know what to say, <laughs> you know? But it's just cool to be with them. I think that's what's going on here. And Jesus, in his grace, can sift through our base desires and our inarticulate requests to his question of what are you seeking? I think that Jesus can help us see the deep desires and, and come to find that what we're truly seeking Between now and next Sunday, I encourage you to sit with Jesus's question, "What are you seeking?" Your answer to that question will help you see how Jesus is inviting you to walk with Him through the Lenten season. And when you realize what you're longing for, you'll you'll know uh, more accurately what Lenten practices to engage in. There's another reason we're not talking about Lent practices because there's a danger here. Let's say Jesus reveals the longing of your heart. And let's say it's to abide with him more deeply over the season. It's very admirable. I hope that's somewhat of what he's saying to you. And let's say that motivates us to practice some spiritual disciplines. The danger is that we will think it's the disciplines that will help us see Jesus, or it's the discipline. Gospel tells of the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he made himself wealthy, wealthy, wealthy by collecting taxes from his fellow Jewish countrymen. And he did that on behalf of the occupying Roman Empire. Jewish man collecting taxes above and beyond what they owed from his own people giving the money to the Romans who were oppressing his people and living high on the hog because of it. Let's just say people did not like Zacchaeus. Now, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus because he's heard he's passing through Jericho, the place where he was living. Now, the crowd is pressing in on Zacchaeus. And after a quick read, it appears that this crowd is passively preventing him because he was simply too short to see over the top of them. I know something about being short in large crowds. Uh, But in the Greek, there's a distinct emphasis indicating that the crowd was actively preventing him. Imagine this, this short little man who makes a living off of overtaxing you, uh, and now he's out in public, a place he didn't usually go, and you've got just this opportunity. Uh, Imagine some big farm dude, like, there's that little elbow in him, right? So they did not like Zacchaeus. Here's their opportunity to kind of make him feel really small. And Luke 19.4 says that Zacchaeus ran ahead of the crowd and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. Now, this is a very important verse, a very important detail that he ran ahead and climbed up this tree because it shows just how motivated and driven Zacchaeus was. First of all, we could guess that it took some serious courage for such a despised person to go out in a public gathering. But what happens next would have made a significant point to Luke's first century audience because Zacchaeus breaks two major taboos. First, he ran. In Jesus' day men, especially men of wealth, did not run. It was shameful to run. And second, men didn't climb trees. The issue wasn't like men couldn't have fun. It was their attire. Wearing how do kids dress up in the patches. It's basically a bathroom, right? So, and they didn't have underpants. you know what I'm saying? So, um, the thing is that it was really a taboo to even show ankle or leg, let alone the other things that are up there. If you're up a tree and you look up, can't unsee that. Okay? So so men, did, men didn't expose themselves in that way. But here, these details really bring to life that this man Zacchaeus is willing to run ahead and to climb up this tree, putting himself in shame's way. Zacchaeus, so badly, wanted to see Jesus. Maybe he wanted to know if the rumors were really true. Was there a traveling rabbi who really spent time with outcasts and tax collectors like him? Zacchaeus was used to doing things his own way, despite what people thought. Otherwise, he could never do that profession. In a way, he represents part of our American value system by being self-sufficient. Zacchaeus thinks, I'll strive in my own strength and find out who this Jesus is from a distance. It's voyeuristic. It's kind of like befriending someone on Facebook without actually knowing them. You can have this surface relationship where you poke through their you know, their history and, and and their pictures, but you don't really have to engage with them at all. And then the story takes a significant turn. Jesus is passing by, and he's stuck. Calls Zacchaeus by name. Zacchaeus, who had done all of this to voyeuristically see Jesus from a distance, all of a sudden is exposed, and he who thought he was going to see Jesus is now seen by Jesus. His cover is gone, his self sufficiency is blown out of the water. Jesus is the and climbing up trees. It's about opening us, putting ourselves in a posture to receive the Lord who loves you, who's already interested in you, who already wants to come and fill your heart. That's what season The question is, will we allow this transformation? that's